All right, everybody, welcome to Africa for Dummies. Um, this is our first episode. My name is Nathan. And my name is Zenge. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm happy to be here. Happy to talk to the listeners and everybody. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Today is our first episode. Africa for Dummies is a podcast where we aim to sort of discuss topics, African topics, and simplify them. Certain topics in Africa tend to be more complex, and we try to simplify them so that everybody can understand. So today there's a special episode because it's a paper that the co-host has uh, written here, Mr. Zenge, which is a paper about the new scramble for Africa and how we Africa is internationally. Uh, so Zenge, you decided to investigate the new scramble for Africa and how it's influencing African policy. Now, why is this topic important? Yeah, uh, basically, I thought, um, you know, when you do IR and you talk about IR, I mean, international relations, basically, everything is more or less about the perspective from the Western um, or, you know, global North. Um, so this is the West, um, Europe, North America, those countries. It's always from that perspective. It's always about how, you know, when dealing with African foreign policy and African politics, it's always about looking at it from the angle of a great power, um, be it from China. You know, when you look at people talking about Africa and China, they always talk about China in, in Africa rather than China with Africa or China and Africa. It's always yeah. about a big country acting upon a weaker state because that's an assumption generally. Assumption is just that uh, weaker countries are basically acted upon by more powerful, greater powers. Mm. So what I tried to find out essentially was, um, do weak powers actually have a brain? Do they actually, <laughs> um, what do they do themselves? You know, um, it's always about China colonizing one country or America being, you know, the main hegemon of this country or mm. France being the main hegemon of it. No one actually looks at how these countries rationalize these relationships and what maneuverability, you know, what legroom do these countries have? So I was mm. basically looking at how, you know, as rising these new emerging powers, China, Brazil, India, and so on, mm. how basically Africa is taking advantage of this, these amount of, you know, great rising powers dealing with Africa. And how is Africa actually advancing its own agenda? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Rather than this depiction of Oh, one country is a satellite. You know, this African weak country is a satellite state of this uh -huh. other country. Uh -huh. So essentially, I was basically looking at: um, Can Africa? Does Africa have an actual voice? Can African actors think? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much what I was, what I was, what I was looking for. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's a very, very, very different point of view because even in the media, the perspective you see is more of the US or China coming into Africa and what their interests are, or maybe the yeah. EU and what their interests are, but never really what the African state's interests are. It's always, oh, this state is now China, this state is now America, this state is now yeah. part of, uh, is the EU's favorite African state, which is uh, really interesting. Now, jumping on to the next question, you know, you discussed that there's very little literature that looks at African foreign policies and even in the literature that's done, it looks from an external power perspective. Now, why does this exist? Why is it that 
uh, the media looks or literature, for example, looks at it from a external power perspective, not from the African state's perspective. Why is this? Why does this occur? Is it that maybe it's a uh, it's not so interesting, or it doesn't exist. Yeah, well, I think this is partly because of you know um, international relations literature uh, historically has just been Western centric uh, and based on great powers. Mm-hmm. This idea, first of all, when I say Western centric, I mean uh, uh, the term Weberian state, mm-hmm. uh, which basically means uh, all the you know functions that we recognize as a state. You know national anthem, the court, parliament, so on. All of these sort of Western um, attributes that signify a state. So it's very statist. First of all, statist. So that's what I mean by Western-centric, Western state models. That's what old traditional um, IR theories like realism, liberalism, all try to look for. Um, They always deal with it from the state level. Uh, So that's one. Uh, And secondly, uh, they, 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 they look at Africa as, and weak states in general. Um, if you look at uh, realism, for example, the theory of realism essentially looks at the idea that because countries are weak, they need to survive. Every state essentially needs to survive, and every state is like a system of anarchy. You know, survive of the fittest, kill yeah. or be killed. So weak states essentially will go on bandwagon. That's the term, bandwagon with a powerful state who's going to be like the, you know, the protector, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the main hegemonic influence to mm-hmm. save them from another rival power who would otherwise kill them, right? So- Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. You keep using this phrase, uh, hegemonic. What, 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 hegemonic, what you, yeah. yeah what hegemonic essentially about, is just, just a, 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 a regional power or a great power. So mm-hmm. America essentially could be the global uh, a hegemon in Western Europe or, mm-hmm. Uh, the hegemonic presence of China in Southeast Asia. Okay. Essentially. okay. So it's a big power with wielding a certain amount of influence uh, politically, economically, such that states either choose to bandwagon with China or oh. they choose to bandwagon. Remember I said bandwagon is essentially when weak states just um, uh, join powerful yeah. states, essentially. They join yeah. powerful states, they, they couple up with powerful states for their own safety, for their own survival. Okay. So that's the, that's the viewpoint of traditional realism when it looks at Africa. It sort of looks at, you know, Angola or Mozambique, right? Mm. Uh, even in the independence struggle, and this was lost in the narrative, you know, even in Vietnam. Often mm-hmm. in Vietnam, we look at it from, okay, this is a fight between the Soviet Union and America. Precisely. One actually looks at Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh's struggle was simply <laughs> for independence. Uh, if you look at it in Mozambique and Angola, mm. the narrative, the wars, those proxy wars, normally are talked about Western, uh, Ameri- pro-American camp or the pro-Soviet Union camp. Mm. It's never really about what were they actually looking for. It was a war of independence from their perspective. And yeah. whoever was going to help them, they took from, you know, uh, Mozambique took aid from the Soviet Union, uh, the Frelimo party, which was the governing party of Mozambique, the party mm-hmm. of the civil war, they essentially took aid from the Soviet Union and from China. So for them, it was simply that we want to get independent and that's the goal. Mm-hmm. But from the other perspective, because the only countries that were helping them were the Soviet Union and China, it's automatically mm-hmm. now, okay, so this party is pro uh, America. Eastern Bloc. Oh, pro China. Yeah, because okay. you're 
getting aid from them. So yeah. they, they, there's a binary African countries without considering what the African countries actually want. There's an assumption that African countries just pick left, you know, east uh-huh. or west. There's no assumption of the African perspective in exactly uh-huh. what these countries want. Uh-huh. So essentially, that was that's what that's what that's what I was trying to look for in how African countries actually, when you scrutinize it, they trade these countries off. Uh-huh. Uh, Zambia, for example, in our first in in in, in the first few years of independence. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think I'll mention this um, in greater in detail in the dissertation. We managed to use um, various other countries uh, to our benefit for our own agenda. Okay. If you get what I mean. So that's soft balancing, essentially. An African country, a weak state, you know, uh-huh. recognizing I'm not being romantic and saying, oh, African countries can do anything now. <laughs> you can go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, African countries just cultivate the interests of greater powers for their own interests right okay as, yes if you, if you get what i mean like mobutu people talk about mobutu as a puppet of the west but uh-huh. mobutu was utilizing the west's need for mineral resources for his own sustenance of power so both of them were using each other both of them were exploiting each other mobutu knew that uh, america is an economic giant america is a military power and he could use their expertise to sustain his grip on power against his enemies within the D, within um, Zaire at that mm-hmm. time, now the DRC, right? In order for him to sustain power. At the same time, Mobutu was also visiting uh, Mao Zedong, was also visiting other leaders. So he was balancing okay. uh, every country's interest in the in Zaire for his, his own. Benefit. So he could and that's basically thing. survive. So that he could basically survive, right? Essentially, to survive. Okay. So people, people, people look at survival, you know, that same theory I told you about realism, right? Yeah. So essentially what I'm doing here um, and what new people commenting on African agency are trying to do is remove realism from okay. this Western-centric, you know, great power. Mm-hmm. Africa has to switch sides. between this side and that mm-hmm. side yeah. to put it from there, from the, you know, from the, from the Western or uh, great power focus. Yeah. the weak state how a weak state thinks realistically through realism right? i see as a weak really state, interesting yeah as a weak state you'd be like oh okay so how can i survive and let me just go get a few uh, military jets from america and then give them a few mining concessions if that's what they want awesome at the same time let me mm. go to china and get a few uh developmental projects from china and then i could give them a little bit of mining concessions at the same time the rest of the mine say uh, many of the other mines would be nationalized or be under my control. So it's this skillful utilization of great powers fighting over you, right? Uh-huh. And you essentially taking advantage of it. Uh-huh. It's almost like a it's almost like a girl playing two guys. Or a tag of war, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, yeah. But that's actually really interesting. I like what you said about the situation in Vietnam. You know, because whenever I I watch documentaries or I read about um, what happened in in, uh, Vietnam, you know, it's always like, we're going to bring democracy to Vietnam. You know, the people of Vietnam are going to get democracy. (laughs) We're here to free you from all that terrorism, everything, America. You know, it's all that type of stuff, man. So it's like always... documentary or like... (laughs) 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 Yeah, but it's always that perspective. I've never really thought about it and been like, huh, what did Vietnam really want? You know, like I've never really thought yeah. about what did the Vietnamese really want? Even 
when I look at a documentary that was done about, uh, sorry, I'm going to butcher this name. I will butcher it. Mubutu Seseko. Yeah. Uh, when you look at his documentary, it's never really um, looking at what he wanted. It's always, oh, he sided with these guys or he started to side more with these guys. Exactly. Um, that's yeah. sort of a perspective. But then you're like, okay, what, what was he, what was his perspective? Which I think is yeah. uh, really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah and so, that's what that's what agency essentially is. That's the definition, mm-hmm. more or less. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I, uh, I guess moving on, like you mentioned in your, I think this was one of my favorite parts by far. Like you mentioned that uh, you start talking about this new scramble for Africa. Now, before we get into the new scramble for Africa, could you discuss a little bit about the old scramble uh, for Africa? Yeah. So the old scramble of Africa, uh, it's sort of like where contemporary African history starts, although African history is thousands of years older than that. But mm. uh, so just, you know, a caution for those people that think Africa's history started with the new scramble of Africa, it didn't. <laughs> Africa has had, yeah, Africa has had many, 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 many uh, years before that. Um, I think it's important to say that because some people honestly don't really know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the scramble, the new, the first scramble for Africa essentially was, um, it wasn't really a scramble. It was sort of countries formalizing what, formalizing another scramble, formalizing a scramble essentially. It was the formalization of a scramble. So the Berlin conference, is, the hallmark is the Berlin conference and, okay. uh, from 1884 to 1885, where several, uh, uh, European countries, I think about seven empires, uh, gathered around the table in uh, in Berlin. Uh, that that time, the president, the, the chancellor of Germany, United Germany, newly United Germany, was Otto von Bismarck. So what they did basically was organize their claims of territory across Africa. The origins of the of the scramble of Africa are varied, of course. Um, there's excuses; people know the excuses, but the origins, uh, the origins are much more in-depth. Things can be found in the recessions. There was about three different recessions in the last three three decades preceding the scramble, the Berlin conference in the uh-huh. early 1880s. Uh-huh. So those recessions essentially meant that, you know, mineral resources uh, were nearly near to depletion. And obviously Africa had a much bigger diversity of mineral resources that were required for industrialization. Uh-huh. So therefore, it was necessary for African for those countries to formalize their claims and introduce it into a globalized market. Because for them, it, that, was, that was essentially the beginning of globalization, the extracting of minerals. Okay. So essentially, yeah, that was the scramble. That was the first scramble for Africa. Uh, numerous empires uh, during the periods of industrialization got an in, you know were increasing in terms of economic power and uh, needed more uh, minerals for their growing economies and growing living standards in a similar way that you know uh, whenever a country becomes richer uh, uh, and the middle class goes grows richer with it as well you have a situation where there'll be more demand for natural resources to meet the needs of the people and the luxuries that come with being in the middle class so the larger the middle class, the larger the need for more natural resources. Therefore, the more the need for uh, African countries or developing countries 
with a, an abundance of a variety of natural resources. So essentially that's how the new Scramble Africa came about. But we can go into greater depth than that because mm. that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole episode in and of itself. But pretty much in a nutshell, that's that's what it is. You know, I like how you describe it in the paper. You're like, uh, this it basically say the old scramble of 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 Africa, you know, turned it into establishment of a mercantilistic mercantilist economic system. Mercantilistic. Mercantilistic, thank you. Economic yeah. system that uh, rapidly reconfigured African civilizations into urbanized low-wage labor centers, supporting the mineral extraction economies and transportation networks that provided raw materials access into Europe and in turn saw Africa purchase the refined products, creating a model called yeah. periphery structure. No full, no full stops, no commas, but <laughs> I, I really, I, I really, uh, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that definition of it. It was a bit of a wrap that one. It's just running. Yeah. yeah. Um, so essentially, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a very complex system of extractive globalization. It was the beginning mm-hmm. of Africa into a larger globalization. I mean, there was trade, uh, interrelations and trade there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so that's pretty much what it is. All right. Now, time for a quick break. Did you like the song at the start of the podcast? I bet you did. The name of the song is called Thinking by Expresso, or a Kenyan rap group that make music in Swahili, one of Africa's most popular languages. Be sure to check them out on Spotify, or you can find some of their songs on our Africa for Dummies Spotify playlist. Additionally, if you have any song suggestions, please send them through to africafordummies at gmail.com. Now, back to the discussion. So you talked about the old scramble for Africa. Now, what's this thing about the new scramble for Africa and what's so different about it? What are the motivations behind it, essentially? Well, the old scramble of Africa was obviously cohesive. Um, It was uh, forcefully done. Uh, in situations, yes, it was forcefully done in some situations, it was not forcefully done in other situations. But what's particularly different in this one is the recognition that there are states in Africa and that they need to be wooed. Do you know what I mean? So they, mm. they, it's, it's, they kind of have no option but to try and convince Africans. And when I say Africans, I'm talking about the leaders, I'm <laughs> talking about state actors. Mm. I'm not talking about every single African. Yeah. So there is essentially a recognition that Africa is independent. So this is the post-independent world and that Africa has to be dealt with with respect in terms of their independence. Of course, countries like now and and the the new scramble of Africa involves much more um, uh, different powers as well. Of course, the old powers are there, but primarily it's being um, reinvigorated through new and emerging powers or re-emerging in some cases like China and India uh, because China and India had been big big civilizations with very huge chunks of the world GDP about two three hundred years ago so some people say re-emerging mm-hmm. and you know Russia re-emerging because you know post-world war uh, the cold war sorry yeah. uh, Russia basically went into a slump and just went back into uh, went into like an introverted era and now in the last, in fact, Russia is one of the last come, the late comers back into this African charm offensive. So what is particularly different with the old scramble of Africa is that the old scramble of Africa essentially was based on a top-down approach 
forced coup. Uh, it was on the basis of, you know, the West uh, European powers, seven European powers coming on the basis of civilization. Some, some of them actually had good intentions, you know, missionaries had good intentions, but mm -hmm. they were actually uh, had uh, bad outcomes in many situations. That's mm -hmm. another discussion for another time, you know, colonialism and so on. So that was, that's the difference. The difference now is a recognition that Africa has experienced this traumatizing history. How are we going to approach Africa in a way that differs to the old scramble for Africa? Okay. How are we going to, you know, th this is what emerging powers try to do. Mm -hmm. They're trying to distinguish themselves to Af in the manner in which they package and sell themselves to African leaders in particular. They want to distinguish the fact that they are different by saying South-South cooperation. And this started actually post uh, in the post-independent era, but it has been revamped now in uh, with the growth in Africa's GDP in the first decade of this century. You know, the uh, economists saying, uh, it, actually in 2000, the economists said, Africa, the hopeless continent, because in the <laughs> 1990s, Africa, Africa was seemingly on fire. You know, people, there was great amounts of democracy going on with the end of one party states across some African countries. But at the same time, these big dictators, you know, you, I'm, I'm using that term lazy. So these big dictators essentially just, you know, left a big vacuum and lots of okay. countries fell into war. The end of Mobutu, the Congo Wars, I think people know about the Congo Wars and how they essentially called the Africa's world war, Africa's okay. first world war, you know. So there was lots of chaos going on. What, um, I was going to say about Terror Rwanda. Yeah. <laughs> Rwandan genocide, Rwandan genocide, the Burundian civil war, Liberian civil war, Sierra Leone civil war. So the economists are just like, ah, okay, we thought that there was hope after they got, you know, they started toppling off these old time yeah. leaders like Mobutu. But yeah, no, it's hopeless. So in the, what happened in the 21st century now is Africa, after privatizing, privatizing is another issue, yeah. Controversial. Um, yeah. So after privatizing, essentially what happened was Africa's GDP started growing. This enormous amount of GDP growth, jobless GDP growth, but increasing <laughs> amount of foreign direct investment. So what that meant essentially was, and a lot of that foreign direct investment was influenced by these emerging powers, right? Not necessarily Western powers. Western powers actually uh, reducing in terms of their share of the global economy. The global economy right now, I think the Financial Times said that this year and last year, mm -hmm. Asia is now the biggest, um, the, the largest shareholder, if you like, yeah. in the global economy. You know, no other country, no other region in the world has more uh, economic muscle power than Asia. Wow. So these countries now are growing. You know, India for the past, uh, I think only until 2011 or so, for the mm. past four years, had an average GDP growth of about seven. China, about 10%. Yeah. Uh, Brazil also growing quite, not as much as China, obviously, but also growing, especially in the, in the first 10, um, 10 years of this century. So a lot of that happened during the first 10 years of this century. In the last 10 years of the century, they're still going, but you know the recession also mm. impacted them, but not as much as the West. And the recession in 2009 is also another thing to do with the West being mm -hmm. seen as, you know, with the West and the, how, how the new scramble of Africa is shaping out to be. So essentially what, um, what the difference is, is that the first scramble of Africa was coercive. It was about conquering, it was about territory. It was about converting people, indoctrinating people. This new scramble of Africa is with the benefit of hindsight 
and the acknowledgement that Africa has been traumatized. And so these emerging countries are trying to figure out how can we, as growing countries now, right? China increasing amount, uh, um, uh, ballooning middle class in need for resources that, you know, Dambisa Moyo calls white goods. So these white goods are middle class basics, fridges, microwaves, appliances. Okay. The appliances that are the hallmark of, you know, your life improving and your life becoming easier. So essentially, these things are under demand because your economy is growing and your middle class is growing in India, in China, in Brazil, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Because in the first decade of the 21st century, these countries are all coming and they all need minerals. So where do you go for minerals? The last frontier, that's <laughs> Africa. So, and Africa's GD, Africa is becoming more stable after, you know, the AU, the yeah. OAU, which is the first organization for Africa, mm-hmm. African unity. Post-independence, it went over a period of mad, crazy dictators. You know, I just mentioned the wars. Mm. So at the end of that, even Africa was also changing. Mm. Africa also looked more attractive. It was more stable, more, you know, pragmatic. All of mm. that anti-colonial ideological stuff was being pushed away. Mm. And even there's things to do with non-intervention, this idea of strict sovereignty that, you know, because it's my country and it's a sovereign country, no matter what I do to my people, I can slap every human <laughs> as long as, as long as you know this is my country. No one can come and intervene. So that what the the new the the the, pre, the successor to the OAU essentially, which is the AU, mm. which was formed in um, I think 2000. I might be wrong, but on the turn of the millennium, mm. essentially said, yeah, we're gonna be more pragmatic. We're gonna set up these things to do with uh, the right to protect, uh, the responsibilities to protect. This essentially meant that we won't give you the right to sovereignty if you aren't keeping your people well, right? If you're going to be abusing your people to the extent that there's a practical genocide going on, we will intervene. You have to earn the right to be a sovereign country, Mm -hmm. right? So human rights and so on started coming into the fold in AU narratives. Uh, constitutionalism, the AU, the Afri- African continent had so many coups before that. So they also talked about democratic, that's why there's this obsession with coming and legitimizing things. You can't just simply come with a gun at mm-hmm. your state media and say, oh, new president, move out. Yeah. You really need elections, even though they're free and ah, there's okay. no contention. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No issue of contention. There's that, an obsession with the legitimacy to, factor. That's similar to what yeah. we saw in Zimbabwe, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why yeah. they tried as best as possible to make it, you know, as clean Sound as possible. And yeah. Look clean. Yeah. So yeah. Because the AU is not the OAU anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are, you know, big, um, powerful African statesmen or very fluent African statesmen like Taumbeki, Mama Gaddafi, Olusegun Obasanjo, were the architects of this sort of new 21st century, responsible, pragmatic Africa. How successful it's been is another discussion. So the mm-hmm. new scramble of Africa now. Essentially, now all of these things met. Uh-huh. Emerging powers are growing. They're getting their act together. They're getting bigger middle class, um, middle class um, uh, cohorts of their economy, yeah. all needing these resources. And Africa is there, last frontier, much more stable, looks responsible, less coups, less uh-huh. wars. So essentially, they come to Africa. Uh-huh. And now you can't just come to Africa and say, Hey, Saab, give me your gold. I mean, just sounds exactly something. the same as the first. Yeah, yeah the first it's essentially the same. Yeah, yeah. So you need you need an excuse, you need a reason, 
Brazil, yeah. what does Brazil do? Brazil comes in and is like, listen, we've got the biggest black population outside Africa. So we are your brothers. Lula da Silva, former president of Brazil actually said, we are Africa's lost brother. That's what mm-hmm. he said. In, and he said, you know, they set up all of these conferences, mm-hmm. um, South America, African conference. Yeah. And India, on the other hand, came and says, no, we have a diaspora in Africa. Mm-hmm. We also were colonized. We understand you. <laughs> uh, we love you. So therefore, you shouldn't be afraid of us. We don't have any bad intentions. Mm-hmm. And we can work together peer to peer. The, the, the biggest that what you can see in all of these powers is that there's an emphasis on it being a peer-to-peer type of rich, um, rhetoric. Yeah. Brazil, lost brother. India, we were both colonized. Both yeah. colonized. China, win-win situation. And yeah. Russia, same situation as well. So all of these countries had to change how they, they approach Africa. That's basically the difference. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of um, explaining it. You know, you, I never really knew why some of these countries, you know, used to just step into Africa. You know, you just see India coming in and, you know, just building a bridge. And then you just see, you know, um, you know, for, for me, a surprising one was um, Israel coming in and, you know, doing something. And I was like, oh, what? Yeah. why is Israel? <laughs> why is Israel yeah, coming and, in? And, and yeah, and it's, it's, and it's not only for natural resources. It's actually there's lots of other um, yeah. reasons around that. It's a very yeah. complex situation. I assume so now. As I read your paper, there's this thing you keep talking about called the extraversion theory. Now, what yeah. does it mean? Uh, quite briefly, could you just say what it means and why it's important? Okay, so basically, the extraversion theory was taken from a book from a book by Jean Francois Bayard mm-hmm. uh, in the early 1990s, which mm-hmm. was essentially talking about. There's a chapter in the book which talks about the history of extraversion. Extraversion. It's basically set in the colonial uh, and pre-colonial Africa about mm-hmm. how African leaders, and as I said earlier, there was agency. So mm-hmm. all of these arrangements were about dealing with these big powers to your own benefit. That's essentially what it is, really. It's about rationally using a big power to your own benefit. Um, as I said before, you know how people always assume that Mobutu was a satellite state of America, but Mobutu was using this American power to sustain his own power and suppress opponents like Laurent Kabila who was operating in Eastern Congo. Mm. So essentially it was a system of sustenance of power, a realist rational system in which weak states sustain mm. power. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Okay. It sounds simpler than it actually sounds like the, when you hear extroversion theory, like, whoa, what, what, what the hell is that? Yeah. It's, so, it's, 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 the reason it's called extroversion is from the word extractive because they leverage their minerals, essentially. Oh, okay. They leverage their natural resources. I yeah. think I mentioned in there the case study of Central yeah. African Republic. Yeah. 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 So now you do the research. Yeah. What were your main findings about, um, about this, this situation? I had a lot of findings, to be honest. Yeah. I li- basically, findings were really varied. There were several countries where you could notice, and you, basically agency was, agency has to be located, first of all, which basically means that agency appears in different areas. You can have agency in um, from the continental level. You can have agency on um, the state level, uh, the bilateral level, one state to another state. So for example, Sudan to China, uh, the Central African Republic to Russia, 
or you could have agency in the sub-state level, how citizens within the state actually deal with and interact with the foreign affairs of another country. Because this is an assumption, not, not really an assumption, but it's actually a general truth-based truth generalization that African foreign policy is based, is really in the realm of the leader. The leader is very powerful, which is why I said the omnipresent executive um, is mainly in charge of foreign policy. But when you look at African agencies, the, the same executive, the same all-powerful leader on African foreign policy is heavily influenced by the interactions within, within the state. And sometimes the state circumvents the same powerful leader. Oh, okay. So essentially, again, you know, the leader is uh, informed by, you know, his citizens' survival, basically. <laughs> He's informed by his survival. Okay. His survival depends on the citizen's survival. They okay. Even... Even in a and 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 both in democracies and in not so democratic African states, these leaders make decisions out of the areas that they have to appease in order for them to survive, uh-huh. right? So, say for example, if you are a leader of a, on a, of an African country and you rely heavily on the trade unions and the religious bodies, right? You can't simply just run the country by force by sheer force and you know brute uh, measures across the whole population by indoctrinating mm-hmm. it doesn't work like that you have to re- you have to create a system of patronage mm-hmm. even when you're dealing in your foreign affairs so when you get developmental aid and development assistance you'd make sure you build your roads in areas that you know that it's going to appease these particular areas that you need to sustain your power so uh, okay. it's 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 a cycle see these the system of patronage informs the leaders foreign policy mm. you know how in, in in i think i wrote there in that, that book in tanzania china built certain schools for presidents in their hometown right mm. so the foreign policy of I china see. links with the <laughs> leaders dissented uh, inputs that's what i call them dissented inputs the okay. things that inform the leaders choices Mm-hmm. The things that inform the leader's foreign policy and how he behaves in order for him to survive. Okay, so yeah. leader wants uh, leader wants a new road built in his home village. He's got China over here wanting to extract mm. some oil from his exactly. country. There's oh China, you want some oil? You can get some oil, but you know, my people need a little bit of a road here. Yeah. Maybe you could. You know, maybe you could fix that for me. Okay, that I, I guess yeah. that's that's. In fact, Magufuli in Tanzania, Magufuli massively developed his district, his home district, Chato. Okay. So it's a massively developed district, mm-hmm. and you can see, you can draw the line from his hometown, informing mm-hmm. him in his decisions in dealing with China. And when <laughs> the Chinese, I think a, a senior Chinese official went to Tanzania, they went to that particular district. Mm-hmm. to see the development that they did, hotels and so on. So yeah. all of these things are interlinked. And yeah. Yeah. so even in the sub-state area, and so this works the other way around also, especially in democracies. Mm-hmm. So these leaders rely on the structures in a democracy, like South Africa, for example, these leaders do rely on popular support, electoral, uh, electoral ability, and so on. So Jacob Zuma, for example, in his dealings with Russia, mm-hmm. His dealings with Russia, essentially, one NGO, and this is a sub-state, also in the exploiting country, the powerful country, informed, were like, yo, listen, there's something fishy going on 
within Russia, between Russia and South Africa. I think yeah. there's a nuclear deal coming up. And it was already signed and it was kind of secretive and opaque. At the same time, coincidentally, there were people affiliated with Jacob Zuma who were also mobilizing <laughs> for, you know, uranium supply for the same nuclear plant. So people put one and two together and they took it to court. Environmentalists took it to court. There's two very brave women took it to court. And the court, the high court essentially just shut it down and said it's unconstitutional. And it led to wider protests, the Zuma score campaign. And that was the end of Zuma's presidency. He had to resign. And that was the end of the project. So that's essentially people circumventing the power of these powerful leaders because people just assume, and in almost every country, the centralized state is in charge of the foreign policy. Even in America, the president is in charge of the treaty signing because the president, as I said earlier, um, or I told you another time, actually, I never said it basically is in charge of, is the only person, the president and the vice president are the only people that are elected in America by mm. every, on a national scale. Everyone mm. else is elected on a, you know, district, district state, level. Yeah. yeah, level. They're the only federally fully elected people mm. by, by the people, of course, through the electoral college, but that's a different discussion. Yeah. So yeah. yeah um, so there's an assumption that in Africa, these leaders are so powerful and they control the foreign policy. But in more democratic states, people are able to circumvent this by working between one sub-state group, an NGO, environmentalist NGO in South Africa, with other NGOs in Russia, sharing information, mm-hmm. taking it to court, mobilizing and ending a presidency ultimately. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you can definitely see the the, the power in, in uh, working with that. Uh, now, uh, you know, when I read your uh, paper, I decided to kind of, it motivated me to sort of go out and start doing more research uh, for myself. And I came across a video that looked at the new scramble for Africa and how we as Africans can win. And that was a video that was done by The Economist. And, um, you know, when I was listening to it, 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 it was cautiously optimistic as they were speaking, you know. Um, but you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a pessimist or something like that. But do you, it led me to the question of: Do you think that we can win as Africans in this new scramble? And what are some of the things that we can do to to win in this new scramble for Africa? Yeah, you know, I was just when when you're saying this, I was thinking of how to respond to this question, and the first thing mm-hmm. that came to my mind was saying. The problem with Africa is, you know, every, every time, every, literally every time someone says that, I switch off. Yeah, like, really. You just know there's going to be a long, a long like, rant yeah. about someone's personal, <laughs> personal experience with Africa in one way or the other. The problem yeah. with Africa the is... problem with Africa. You know, the problem with Africa, the problem with Africans... It's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, I think yes, there is room for optimism, a room for cautious optimism, actually, because uh, there's still an obsession with the state. And there is, uh, in fact, the old scramble of what was different, what, what's different between established powers engagement with Africa and new powers engagement with Africa is that Established powers and talking about Western powers actually like dealing with Africa on NGO civilian levels. So the state sort of feels like, why are you going through my back door? 
when you aren't able to come and speak to me directly. You know, the aid goes to NGOs, civil society, sub-state groups, because it somehow smells like they don't trust the state. So from yeah. an African leader's perspective, you'd be offended. So the main argument, the, the main advantage that countries like China have and Russia is they deal directly with the state. They give the state the loans to do stuff. Mm. Whereas traditionally, the old-fashioned way of doing development and development aid was that they'll uh, either give the state money, which was bad, or they'll give civil society money, which sort of insults the state, the whole state. Mm -hmm. So they have to be really cautious in how you deal with these countries because African democracies, more democratic African countries, you have to be able to appease everybody, everyone that's important within the foreign policy acting. The leader is nothing without the people and the people, okay, they can survive without the leader, but you, know, <laughs> you kind of need functions and bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. So what I think the problem is, problem with Africa is, <laughs> um, is the interests, right? You have to be able to align the people's interests with the leader's interests. I think the people are able, as you have seen in other countries like South Africa, they're able to express their emotions and their feelings. In Kenya, actually, I think recently they sent a message to the IMF or the, or the World Bank, basically mm -hmm. telling them that, yo, we can't afford this debt. So whatever our leader tells you, don't listen to it with us. And okay. this is a Twitter. This is a group of people on Twitter in Kenya, essentially. Yeah. That just mobilized. So I think yes, there's a lot of hope for that. There's a lot of opportunity because there's so many different ways to engage these big organizations without simply just having to assume government office. It's important, yes, have more able, strong-minded people actually in government with the people's interests, because this focus on state-centric, not the best of intentions, is not in the interests of the people. You know, when those people in the bureaucracy and the foreign policy are not in line with the interests of the people, you get incidences like in Zambia in 2007, when the president of China, you know, the official line was, win-win situation, China, lovely, we're good friends, never, yeah. never. <laughs> when, when the Chinese president came, you, it was embarrassing because the Chinese president, essentially, his plan was to go to uh, um, the copper belt, which is the main copper producing region in Zambia, uh, to construct, to begin the construction, you know, lay the, the, the groundbreaking stone for the construction of a stadium, 60,000 seater stadium as a gift, you know, a friendship gift to Zambia. But they canceled, they actually canceled that because there was a fear that the president would spark protests. Because a, a, year, a year ago, there was a highly xenophobic election, you know, lots of anti-Chinese sentiments as a result of an explosion that killed 50 people at a Chinese mine. So people were protesting to the extent, the threat of the protest actually stopped the Chinese president for caring, from caring about his daily, you know, um, what, what would have been a good showcase, sure. a good visit, yeah. a good charm, of, charm offensive. So yeah, no one can ignore that. They know it has happened, you know. So people are able to show these things. That's what happens when the bureaucracy is not in line with the people's feelings. And in democracies, like Zambia, to one degree or another, <laughs> people ultimately vote you out, right? Yeah. When the bureaucracy is not in line with the people's interests, people ultimately can and they will vote you out, which is why in 2011, the MMD lost the election, which is why Jacob Zuma had to resign. He was forced to resign. Because even in the foreign policy, of course, internally, domestically, there are issues to do with corruption and so on. But I'm jumping into the Jacob Zuma thing from the Russian mm -hmm. South African nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. 
these things add to people not feeling like you have their interests at heart. So sub-state groups are able to act in foreign policy. They're able to make their voice known in foreign policy, especially in more democratic states. In less democratic states, it's much harder because obviously you have to calculate the cost of repression. Mm -hmm. Is it worth it to probably die, go to jail, or campaign in exile? Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah. against say Museveni opening an oil plant in Western Uganda, which is another interesting story. Yeah. So all of these things, substate. So yes, there is there is hope. I think there is hope. Uh, Africans have the right to be cautious, and I think our generation is very much. It just doesn't is not interested in reproducing this whole um, almost blind obedience to leaders. Uh, and, I see. But I think there has there has to be a sense of rationality. Simply pro protesting won't really take you anywhere. You have to actually be able to put it down either mobilize uh, politically or go to court, challenge, whatever these deals are, and be able to read and look through these things in depth for you to challenge these foreign deals that these, um, these leaders do. Yeah. Yeah, I think there, there certainly is um, a lot of hope. I think that, um, I think The Economist uh, stated that um, as people move into urban cities, I believe, like the, the less likely they are to, to vote for like an authoritarian figure, that sort of a thing. Yeah. And I, I think that deals a lot with the education and uh, things of that nature. But I think that's a, that's a good place to actually end it on uh, a little bit of hope, you know, for Africa. Uh, unlike hope, yeah. some very cautious <laughs> hope. But um, yeah, that was the first episode of Africa for Dummies. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And Again, if you have any other topics that you would like us to listen to, any song suggestions, um, we really love African music, preferably uh, sang in a uh, uh, local language. That would be really dope. Um, mm -hmm. And you can send it through at africafordummies at gmail.com. Africa for Dummies with the number four uh, dummies at gmail.com. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for joining us. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, this is the first episode, as you know, we're super excited. And whoever can just show their support, listen to our stuff. We're going to have more episodes. We're probably going to have different people around. It's not just going to be us if you get bored <laughs> of us. And yeah, um, we're just counting on your support and everybody to listen listen to this. And I hope um, you've enjoyed what you've heard. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah.